Welcome to Closing Time, conversations on the legal and technical aspects of commercial real estate, presented by Capital Rivers, the industry's leading disruptor. Our host for this episode, Scott Toussaint. As Sean said, we're not trying to give you anything remotely approaching an exhaustive list, but we're just trying to hit on some things that we find interesting and and important that people don't necessarily think of that way. And the other topic, at least one of the other two, is is the subleasing topic. And I've dealt a lot in in uh, my career in the subleasing realm, and it's something that again people don't really pay attention to very closely. Normally, they're particularly the tenants. They may be excited about a new lease. You're not thinking down the road of of subleasing at the time that you're entering into a lease generally. But it actually is, to me, it's probably the number one hidden issue in commercial leases, because once it becomes important, it becomes very important. Generally, if you're a tenant and you're at the position where you need an exit strategy. You've only got a few possible exit strategies. One is you breach your lease, you walk away, and, and then you'll be subject to lawsuit and the damages prescribed under, under law and under the lease. You've got the possibility of approaching your, your landlord for a negotiated buyout. You've got the, the possibility of... Those are the big non-transfer um, exit strategies then you've got the ones where you bring in a, a party to transfer your lease rights to. Um, an assignment of your lease is the less common of those two options. And then the sublease is the, the most common. And it's a, uh, I won't even get, get into it even remotely fully into the, the details, but let, let me just ask you, Sean, like how often do you see subleasing come up? Is it something that people give it give it the attention it deserves, in your opinion, at the outset of a lease? I agree. I think it's underrated. I think a lot of people don't think about subleasing when they enter into a lease. You know, I think the mindset when someone enters into a lease uh, for both parties is usually very positive. You're not thinking about those kind of things as far as uh, an exit strategy at that point. So it, it gets probably overlooked quite often. I see more assignment type uh, situations in my practice. I see uh, where someone is selling uh, a business uh, Uh, and they need to assign the lease rights to the buyer of their business. So that's something I see quite often. And uh, and at that point, uh, you know, a lot of things come up like, you know, the landlord will usually there'll be a requirement for the landlord to approve the person or entity that's going to be uh, taking over the lease. So there's a, a, you know, there's that component of it as as far as you have to go back to the leases, you know, what's the requirements uh, for a landlord consent to an assignment. And that could be a huge deal. If you're trying to sell a business that has maybe you've got seven, seven leases, seven locations, Mm -hmm. and now you've got to go to all seven landlords potentially and get, get consent to the sale of your business, which you don't even really think of uh, in terms of worrying about your leases. Yes, correct. And then, uh, you know, then the the buyer or the person that's going to be taking over the lease, uh, they have to provide financials usually. Uh, Uh, Most commercial leases will have language where the potential assignee must have the same financial 
abilities as the person that is assigning the lease. So a landlord may request financials at that point. Another topic that comes up at that point is, you know, does the landlord have a right to disapprove of a potential assignee uh, or a potential assignment of the lease? And or does the lease have language that states that a landlord cannot unreasonably withhold consent? But I'd say one of the biggest issues that comes up from the point of the person that's assigning the lease or the entity that's assigning the lease is they want to be relieved of all liability after they assign the lease. And that's usually where you have to have a discussion and some negotiation with the landlord um, and a, a discussion with the tenants, because a lot of times they assume that, hey, if I assign the lease, I don't have any obligations under this lease anymore. And that's rarely the case. Yeah. Usually a landlord is very reluctant to release uh, the original tenant or the tenant that's assigned in the lease from liability. Yeah, that, no, you're, you're making a great point because if you're, like, if you're a small business and uh, let's use retail as the example, and you're a small business and you know your goal is to get up maybe seven, eight, 10 locations and maybe sell to a, to a larger group or at least you know that's a possibility. Well, that means every time you're, you're working on a lease, um, you're entering a lease. I know it's probably the last thing on your mind or that you want to deal with, but you you need to look at that assignment provision and foresee down the road and the potential obstacle that could create to selling your business in ways that uh, you know an uncooperative landlord could really foil your plans or or at least cut into the the price that you're going to be able to to dispose of your business for. So it's a great point, and I'm thinking of it in the subleasing context. Assignments in some way are simple because you're just handing the entire lease over to your to the the buyer in the, in this circumstance, and that is usually when an assignment comes up. It's it's from a buyer of your business. You just assign the lease to them, you know, usually with your landlord's consent if you can get it. A sublease is so complicated because you're trying to you're trying to in some ways fit a, a square peg in a round hole because you've got to deal with a deal. You've got an agreement with your your landlord that says, you know, X, Y, and Z. And now your rights as a tenant need to be translated to another party that's going to step into your shoes, but their deal is not going to be exactly the same. They're going to pay a different rent. You have to make sure that the provisions of the sublease fall within the provisions of, of the the master lease and um, real property ownership is a is a bundle of rights, and a lease of that real property is the passing along of a portion of those rights, and not they are not the entirety of it. There's also contractual covenants that are made between the landlord and the tenant that don't neatly fit into the context of a sublease. So the drafting of a sublease agreement is if you want to do it cleanly and clearly and avoid problems down the road is a very complicated undertaking. And most people, you know, as lawyers, Sean, you and I know that um, most people think of a sublease as a simpler matter because, Oh, it's just a sublease. I mean, I've heard that a million times. It's just a sublease, but actually from a legal standpoint, it's a more complicated contract than an actual original lease if you're going to do it properly, that's a big if because a lot of people just kind of um, take the chance that they're not going to, the fine print of the lease is not going to come into play and everything will go smoothly, which absolutely may be a valid position to take. 
But if you want to do it cleanly and clearly, it's a very complicated agreement to draft. So that's that. Unless you want to add anything, that's that's kind of I think all we'll say on that. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. Uh, I think it's uh, it's not an easy thing to do. You really need to pay attention when you're drafting the sublease to the definitions in the original lease. It really needs to be incorporated. Uh, you can't draft the sublease without painstakingly going through the actual lease because it's very important. And, uh, you know, you know, if there's conflicts between the language of the sublease and the uh, original lease, there's a lot of issues that come up. So uh, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. It's a lot more complicated than uh, sometimes it looks. Okay, good. I'm not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the third topic, final topic is the underrated issues just a few of them again not an exhaustive list even even close to exhaustive but just a few interesting underrated topics from commercial real estate purchase and sale agreements that sean and i have uh, encountered in our careers We've got a few listed here sean do, do you have any particular that stand out for you yeah, I think in the last 12 months, kind of given what's been happening is uh, the right to delinquent rent. Uh -huh. uh, because, uh, you know, when when uh, a commercial property is being sold, that may come up as a, an issue. If there's tenants in a center, retail center, office building, industrial building, any kind of commercial real estate that has tenants, if it's being sold and there are certain tenants that may have delinquent rent, Oh, yeah. You're talking uh, like, like maybe 10 months rent. Correct. Yes, correct. Because, uh, you know, so if there's any kind of link with rent, it could be a large sum. It could be uh, abated rent, deferred rent, some kind of lease amendment that modified things and a tenant is paying past due rent or, or they just have uh, this large balance. So the question at that point becomes, well, who, who has to write to this delinquent rent? the buyer of the property or the seller. Because in, in a typical transaction, usually it'll be, you know, rent set accrue prior to closing belong to the seller, rent set accrue after closing belong to the buyer. Right. Uh, so it's usually a clean, uh, pretty clean cut. But now, you know, that becomes important when you're representing the buyer or the seller. And uh, I think one of the considerations is what's the likelihood of being able to collect this past due rent? If the likelihood is low, a seller may be less uh, motivated to try to really keep that right in the purchase agreement, or uh, a buyer may, you know, want to make sure they do get that right. So it's, it's an important discussion that that kind of needs to be had if there is delinquent rent on a property that's being sold. Well, and now that you've brought it up, what actually occurred to me was, let's say the last six months before the sale of a property, the tenant has, has been delinquent. And fine, everyone knows that there's six, there's six months in arrears. And let's say that, you know, the closing occurs anyway. Let's say you've allocated that six months rent if it ever comes in to the original owner, the seller. And then there's a continuation of maybe another six months of delinquent rent. Um, and then maybe they get back up on their feet or maybe they go away or whatever. But maybe there's some kind of a settlement. Well, who gets to negotiate that settlement and decide when both parties have an equal right to to that delinquent rent or you know in the six month six month each scenario or whatever the breakdown is both parties have an interest in the settlement of that rental payment who gets to decide whether to go after them 
who gets to decide what they're going to pay and what portion of the lease does that represent? You know, what time period? Maybe you go back to the first in, first out so that the, the if they're going to pay back six months only, maybe the seller says, well, that's all my rent because that was the most delinquent rent. I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting thing that needs to be thought through if yeah. you're buying or selling. Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it could get hairy, you know, uh, it can get complicated and, uh, you know, it's important to also differentiate between the right to collect delinquent rent and the right to keep the delinquent rent, because in language, certain language may give a buyer or a seller the right to go after the delinquent rent and take steps to collect it. But then there might be language where even if they collect it, depending on when it was accrued, they have to hand it over to the other party. Either the buyer hands it over to the seller or the seller hands it over to the buyer. So the right to collect delinquent rent and the right to keep the delinquent rent is important to differentiate you know, those two things because they are uh, different. And uh, another topic that comes up is important for buyers is uh, potentially if a seller does retain the right to collect delinquent rent, uh, you know, got, you, you, as a buyer, you need to make sure that uh, the seller doesn't have a right to do anything with the tenant's right to occupy the space, you know, right. to disturb that, you know. So it just yeah. it oh, can yeah. get really complicated. Yeah, because your your number one hammer to collect rent as as a landlord is the threat of eviction. Correct. And if you're the seller, you're no you no longer have that threat, but maybe maybe you have a legal argument that you do still have that right, or maybe there's something in the the purchase contract that. They gave you that right that the buyer didn't even recognize to step into your shoes, or maybe they just take them to court and they just ruin the, the ruin the tenant's uh, tenancy or the, the landlord tenant relationship or something. So um, yeah, no, it's there's all kinds of important a lot of little things, details to really think through on these uh, when that when that issue comes up when there is delinquent rent. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, on both sides, sellers and buyers. Yeah, no, very relevant in this day and age, especially like maybe a shopping center. Um, might you might have a lot of delinquent rent in in uh, in play, and so it's you know you might be talking about tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. So it's it's worth giving careful attention. Yeah. Thank you for downloading Closing Time, presented by Capital Rivers Commercial. If you're interested in partnering with us, visit CapitalRivers.com to learn more. And follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram for the latest updates and real estate opportunities.